Father, with our imperfect human vision, we want to try to look at the events of the future. We want to try and at least increase our understanding of the path that you have chosen and cast up for the ransom to the Lord in the final days. Help us to remember, Lord, that some prophet or martyr has gone over every step of the way before us. And although the final steps are such that only Jesus is our complete example, Lord, we pray that you would brace us for the days of the end. In Jesus' name, amen. At the end of verse history, God's people will face Satan's final attack. This will be his most deceptive effort ever. Fortunately, we have the promise, we still have the promise, that God will not allow him to tempt us above what we are able to resist. The sobering news is that at that time, God's people will be able to resist all his temptations, and so there will be no more need of tampering with the process. Seriously. You think the devil would say that was a fair test? Yeah? I'm trying to sell them on my government, Lord, and you won't even let me give them their best, my best sales pitch. That's not going to fly. The whole purpose, the whole purpose of the process is to get God's people to the point where they can claim the promise and God will say, it's good. Finally, I don't have to do anything special for you anymore. <laughs> you can bear it. <clears throat> Finally, I can turn him loose. That's the demonstration that's needed. Adam and Eve chose the knowledge of good and evil, and guess what? Yeah, we're going to know all there is to know of evil before this game is over. We signed up for the class. Might want to consult. But, you know, before you go walking into the registrar's office next time. <laughs> well, it's good news and bad news and all this sort of stuff. Um, the good news is that the Lord has a plan to get us to that stage. The bad news is we aren't there yet. Okay? So, the nice thing, the thing to remember in our final episode here. Nothing new here. We've seen it all before, if we've paid any attention to it. We've seen it with Lucifer. We've seen it in Christ's life. We've seen it in Dr. Kellogg. There's nothing to be surprised about now. <clears throat> but how in the world are we ever going to... Uh, Ever resist all the wiles of the devil? The answer is by learning the lessons of history. <laughs> the followers of Christ know little of the plots which Satan and his hosts are forming against them. But he who sitteth in the heavens will overrule all these devices for the accomplishment of his deep designs. The Lord permits his people to be subjected to the fiery ordeal of temptation 
not because he takes pleasure in their distress and affliction, but because this process is essential to their final victory. He could not, consistent with his own glory, shield them from temptation, for the very object of the trial is to prepare them to resist all the allurements of evil. You know, once again, what we commonly think we're seeing is just absolutely stood on its head, you know? Trials are not bad things. Trials and obstacles are God's appointed means of success. Right? You've read that? Okay, well, let's go on. Love this statement. Hate the way it's usually used. <laughs> we have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. That's why it's important to know there's nothing new. The devil's got nothing new he's bringing at us. We've seen it all before if we've been looking, right? Satan deceives and corrupts the world and makes men believe that they are sinless and holy while sinning against God, but in so doing, he is only carrying on his original work. He has introduced no new arguments. He has created no new empire of darkness from which to draw supplies for the furtherance of his deceptions. Sin that was sin in the beginning is sin today, and sin, the apostle declares, is a transgression of God's law. But there's nothing new here. Take heart. There's no reason to be surprised. Could we be surprised? Oh, yeah. Don't study for the test. Things might not go well. Yeah, just kind of the way it works in school. Statement goes on. In these days, it is Satan's determined purpose to intensify sin by making it legal in the children of disobedience. He is to reveal to the world and to heaven what is the order and result of a government carried on according to his ideas of administration and law. He is working with secret, yet with intense zeal in both church and state to cause men to throw off all the restraints of God's law and take a decided stand with him in the ranks of rebellion. But when his work is accomplished, the Lord will interpose and vindicate his honor as the spring ruler of the universe. <laughs> but Satan's work has to be allowed to go forward. The only thing that's holding it up is God's mercy. Because if he, well, we'll see that in another statement down the road, so I won't say that right now. This is interesting. Notice this. First sentence. Determine purpose. Make it legal. <laughs> Make it legal. Oh, man, you heard of any sins being made legal lately? <laughs> He's working with intense zeal in both church and state. You know, the devil's, the devil's no slacker, you know? He's going to find every avenue he can find, and he's going to work it for all it's worth. <clears throat> okay, so this is the reason that I, I think the parallels we've been talking about, I didn't really stress that they were parallels until yesterday, just kind of you know, laid the information out there and let you fiddle with it however you wanted to. But there is the, the record of the past, which I believe is, there's, there are parallels that are very, very instructive, right? So the Lord's given us the record of all this, which we've talked about, in order to illustrate this, which is what we hope to cover this morning. 
The important thing to remember is that closing events are simply the full and final <coughs> display of the principles and methods that have gone before on both sides, good and bad. What worked for good back then will work for good today. What worked as evil back then has not been sanctified today. It's still evil. <laughs> okay, it's, it's, it's still evil. I don't care what they say. It's still evil, folks. Just as Satan will have nothing new, so we must be careful to not bring in any new methods and principles of our own and try to finish the work that Jesus began and then entrust it into our hands, right? He didn't say, well, I got started. You guys figure out. Yeah, think of something great and go ahead. He didn't say that. Christ's method alone will give true success. <laughs> Notice the word method right there. It is singular. Isn't that talking about all the little distinctions between one case and another? You know, I mean, one time Jesus put clay on somebody's eyes, and another time he just touched them, and another time he just spoke. And you know, We're not talking about that stuff. Okay, <laughs> That's interesting. You might get something out of that. I don't know. not sure what, but, you know, it's, it's interesting. But that's not the method, because the method is singular. What we're talking about here is the big method, the one that stands out above all the others. We saw it in our second meeting, particularly. The great object that brought Christ to the earth was to reveal the Father. God is love. This was the great truth that Christ came to the world to reveal. The object of Christ's mission to the world was to reveal the Father. In all his ministry, all his self-denial and self-sacrifice, Christ's object was to reveal God to the world. So what do you suppose might be the secret of success in the final days? Yeah. You and I are not important in this game. It's not for us to try and attract attention to ourselves. We've got a higher, holier task. <clears throat> but things are different from back then because Jesus isn't here. But he that believes on me do the same works and even greater, Jesus said. Now it's our job. Within the flow of the plan of salvation, this final task comes down to God's final people on earth. It's unlike any other, well, what should I say? It's, it, in a degree, it's unlike what has been asked of any previous generation. It's not, it's not the same thing as, as being a Martin Luther, which is kind of sad because I don't measure up to Martin Luther, and that's kind of, you know, alarming. <laughs> okay? It's a higher calling than Luther had because it, it requires a higher understanding of the character of God than was available to Luther. It's not Martin's fault. <clears throat> the world needs today what it needed 1,900 years ago. I suppose we could update that and make that an even 2,000-something now, but anyhow. A revelation of Christ, who was here to reveal the Father, who was the same as Christ. <laughs> same thing, right? So, it's all good. 
What the world needs today is the light of Christ's example reflected from the lives of Christ-like men and women. Okay. Hearts will be captivated, not by the glory of the man or lady in our gender-inclusive era, but by the inward adorning of an abiding Christ. It is the revelation of Christ in the man that captivates the hearts of men and women. They behold the beautiful character of Christ revealed by good works. The method's still the same. Remember back in 1893, Dr. Kellogg's first three sermons were on the value and necessity of good works. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre. He actually had to spend three sermons just simply trying to establish that we ought to be doing good works. <laughs> I think he might have been onto something. It's more than that. God's purpose in committing to men and women the mission that he committed to Christ is to disentangle his followers from all worldly policy and to give them a work identical with the work that Christ did. You know, I, I, I don't think I would have ever had the nerve to use the word identical. I didn't. I just quoted the statement. What did she mean when she said identical? I've thought about that a lot. And you know what I've come up with for a conclusion? I've decided that she meant identical. <laughs> that's, that's the best I could do. <laughs> that's the best I can do with that one. I think she probably meant what she wrote. The glory of the character of Christ can never be expressed in words. Human language is inadequate to reveal it. It must be made manifest in the life. It is to be manifest in the individual Christian, in the family, in the church, in the ministry of the word, and in every institution established by God's people. Which means that the individual, the family, the church, the ministers, and institutions are all supposed to be doing good works. You know, it was impossible for Jesus, we had a statement the other day, it was impossible for, for Jesus to reveal, convey, I don't remember the wording there, you know, the, the, the character of his father by words alone. Here's a hot tip. If Jesus couldn't do it, you can't do it. <laughs> okay. Well, there's one exception. No, he could sin. He just chose not to. Anyhow, okay, let's go on. <laughs> uh, if, if Jesus couldn't do something good, we better learn his method of, of actually doing it, right? If he couldn't do it with well, the one method, then we better learn the method that he chose to use. That's what I want to say. Okay. That's why in our work of revealing the character of God, we need to use the same methods, plural this time, okay? The preaching, the teaching, the healing, the ministry. There's, there's methods now. The method singular is the revelation of the character of the Father. The methods are breaking it down a little closer to the tactics involved. You know, okay, so what do we do with this case? What do we do with that case? How do we treat this one? How do we do that? All that sort of thing. Okay, that's the methods. We need to figure out how Jesus did it. Christ, the great medical missionary, is our example. He healed the sick and preached the gospel. In his service, healing and teaching were linked closely together. Uh, today they are not to be separated. 
The Holy Spirit never has and never will in the future divorce the medical missionary work from the gospel ministry. They cannot be divorced. Bound up with Jesus Christ, the ministry of the word and the healing of the sick are one. There's another statement I use in other, other presentations. It says that um, the, the, the gospel of healing or health reform, or something, I don't remember the exact way it's worded, but you know, the idea of, of, of medical missionary, I think it was medical missionary work, medical missionary work and the three angels message? Maybe that's the way it's worded? Yeah, two things like that, right? It says they are bound inseparably together. Okay? So what I often do, you know, I, I teach in classrooms, and they'll often have a whiteboard, you know, and if, I'm, if it's a good day, there'll be a, a red pen and a blue pen or something sitting on the whiteboard. You know, I take that, I take those, and I take a, a rubber band. And I tell the class, I said, okay, now, let's just pretend that, it's going to take a stretch, I know, but let's just pretend that, number one, I just got married, and number two, I'm the bride, and this is my bouquet. So I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to heave this thing over my shoulder. Whoever catches it, just hang on to it. Hide it away. So this is, this is a way to keep people's attention. You know, if you're threatening to throw something at them, they, they focus on you. you know? <laughs> and I fling it over my shoulder at them, and there's usually a gasp or two, because I... Ah, not as, usually there's not a high ceiling, you know? So none of this softball stuff, it's just like a boom, you know? Okay? So somebody's in danger of getting a black guy if they're not careful. So they're, they're all focusing on this. And somebody catches the two pins and hides it away. And then I turn around and I say, okay, those two pins, the blue pin and the red pin, were bound inseparably together. So a question for you, class. How many of you do not, no, no, how many of you have the red pen? One hand goes up. And so then I say, now, class, what do I know about the person who just put their hand up? They, they also have the blue pen. There we go. Okay. And then I ask, how many of you do not have the blue pen? And, you know, under good circumstances, ever being honest, all but one hand goes up. And then I address the one who caught the pins, and I say, what do I know about all of them? They don't have the red pen either. And when you're talking about medical missionary work and the truths of the three angels' message, <coughs> if you're going to be a Seventh-day Adventist, you better have both. Because you can't have one without the other. So quit playing games. The union of Christ-like work for the body and Christ-like work for the soul is the true interpretation of the gospel. Okay. Uh, ta -ta, ta -ta. Okay. All this raises some questions, and, and to me the most interesting one is, why? Why do we need to do the work that Jesus already did? Yeah? Yeah? I mean, he was here. He was the great medical missionary. He revealed the character of the Father. What's the point? Why are we even talking about this? Remember these? There's three at the bottom. 
Jesus answered the first six. That much completely justified, uh, vindicated is a better word I wanted, that much completely vindicated the government of God through the events of eternity past. But the government of God is now in a unique and it's a one-off situation. It hasn't ever happened before and never going to happen again. And that is that the Godhead is proposing to the rest of the universe to take individuals who were born in sin, whatever that means, all the theologians can you know, argue with David on that one, but you know, whatever it means, you know, David was born in sin. I don't know what that means. You know, okay, so <laughs> take individuals like that, individuals who have been participatory sinners, individuals who have never seen a single day of, 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 of heavenly perfection in their lives, bring them to heaven, seat them on the throne of God, and make them immortal so we can't get rid of them even if we want to. Let me just explain some of those things, right? Revelation 3, to him that overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me on my... That's God saying that. I'm thinking that's a pretty good honor. Gabriel has never sat on the throne of God. Lucifer wanted to, or at least have one of his own nearby, perhaps, however he you know, exactly envisioned that. Participatory sinners are going to be seated on the throne of God. Formerly participatory sinners. Now, okay, think for a second. Oh, you know, I can never remember the reference on this. It's, it's got a six in it. Somebody help me out. First Timothy something? I don't know. I, I don't know why. This, this one reference never sticks with me. But you use it all the time when you give your Bible studies on the state of the dead. So here's my question. According to the Bible, who alone hath immortality? And my second question is, what's the reference for that? <laughs> somebody, somebody must have that better than I do. I, I, I think it's 1 Timothy 2.6 or something, or 4.6, or I don't know. I never can remember that, but, you, but you're familiar with the verse, right? God alone hath immortality. 616. Thank you, sister. I've got to remember. It has two sixes. Maybe that'll help me. First Timothy 616, was that what it was? First Timothy 616. Okay, there we go. Okay. Now, let me ask you a couple questions. If God alone has immortality... Well, what about angels? Are they immortal? How do we know? Some of them are going to be destroyed. What about Gabriel? Is Gabriel immortal? Is Gabriel going to die? Don't think so. He could. He probably, we assume, I have pretty good confidence, he won't. Okay. Angels have what we have referred to as conditional eternal life. But they're not immortal. But 1 Corinthians 15, the trumpet shall sound, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and this mortal shall put on immortality. If I were Gabriel, 
I would be asking for a little consult with Jesus. Really? Is that a good idea? <laughs> Participatory sinners, elevated to the throne of God, made immortal. You know, Jesus, I trust you, but we really want to be careful with this. <laughs> this is not something where we want to make a mistake. You know, remember, Gabriel loved Lucifer. I like to think they were special friends. I mean, everybody loves everybody up there. So, you know, in one sense, that's not very special. But <laughs> Gabriel and Lucifer, I get the impression, were fairly closely associated in their work in heaven. Let's not do it again, Jesus. Let's not do it again. And so these seven and eight in particular, now number nine is just writing, you know, when seven and eight are demonstrated, nine is automatically demonstrated because, you know, it, it's, it's, it says that God's been lying and when it's proven that he wasn't lying on any of them, then nine just kind of evaporates. So seven and eight are the big issues. And that's why God's people at the end of time fill a special function which has never been filled before. Okay. We don't have the time to go into all the details of these accusations. I can tell you that they are fascinating, seven and eight. Um, encourage you to take some time to delve in them on, into them on your own. The key thought for our purposes right now is simply that this is necessary because of God's insistence that he wants to save human beings. He doesn't have to save human beings. There's a statement, I should have put it in here, I suppose, you know, statement that says that you know, God could wipe out the race and heaven would rise up and say, you are just, O God, for you have destroyed rebellion. And another statement says that all heaven would be just as happy as it is now if the human race were destroyed. He doesn't need us. He loves us. He doesn't need us. Hallelujah to Jesus. Okay, let's go on. <clears throat> In the character of God's people, a living testimony will be born that will contradict the fallacy of Satan who has declared that the law of Jehovah is arbitrary and holds its subjects under a cruel bondage. Now, backing up one slide, notice number seven there. Satan claims that God's law is arbitrary. That's a, a very key assertion. We're not going to have time to wade into that one, okay? But I, I commend it to your consideration. This living testimony is going to contradict the fallacy that the law is arbitrary. Now let's do a little summary of God's work at the end of time. Oops, I'm sorry, one more item, maybe two more items, let's see. The Lord desires for his people to answer Satan's charges by showing the results of obedience to right principles. Okay, here we go. Um, little summary, God's final work uses the same method that Christ used during their, his life on earth, the revelation of the character of God. God's final work requires that human beings take on the role Jesus played during his life on earth. Not the role of intercessor, not the role of the Son of God, not the role of the Messiah, but the role of the representative of God. Okay? 
not, you, you use a little common sense. I'm not saying any of the stupid things you might think I could possibly be trying to say. That. Is that, are you good, you good with me on that one? Okay. We've been given the work that's identical. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Maybe I should have phrased it that way. Maybe next time I will. The revelation of God's character cannot be accomplished through words alone. Acts of mercy and healing are also necessary. In short, God's final work is self-sacrificing medical missionary work. Boom. Okay. All of which helps us understand this statement. The truth for this time, the third angel's message, is to be proclaimed with a loud voice. Now, never lose sight. All this other stuff I'm talking about is supportive of the third angel's message. That's what we're here for. It's just that we need all this other stuff to do the job here. Okay? The third, truth for this time, the third angel's message is to be proclaimed with a loud voice, meaning with increasing power, as we approach the great final test. This test must come to the churches in connection with the true dots. Now, stop for a minute. If you're familiar with this reference already and you know what the next words are, then just be quiet. Let everybody else try and, you know, fuddle around with it a bit, okay? If you're not familiar with it, what do you suppose comes next? The final test. The final test of God's people comes to the churches in connection with the true... Oh, you guys are just like spoiling all my fun. <laughs> Nobody's going to say true Sabbath? Come on. <laughs> of course it's in connection with the true Sabbath, but that's not what's specified here. That's not what's specified here. The true medical missionary work. A work that has a, the great physician to dictate and preside in all it comprehends. There you go. Did we just jettison the Sabbath? Of course not. The set. You know, there's another great statement I, I use, too. It says that, you know, we cannot keep the Sabbath holy unless we observe or obey or something. The, the, the scripture, colon, and then she quotes most of uh, the key sections of Isaiah 58. Yeah, now, isn't that, would that not be just kind of ridiculous to be going around preaching the third angel's message, you know, and never keeping the Sabbath holy ourselves. Seems a little futile. I'm thinking we have better things to do with our time. Okay. There isn't all that much direct information about the Omega. We talked about that a little yesterday. The best starting point to understanding is to go back and learn all we can about the Alpha, which we've kind of already done. Unfortunately, the picture of the Alpha which emerges is not good. It's pretty ominous. It, uh, most obvious problem, the one that we've tended to focus on, is pantheism. The belief that God is not a specific person, but some sort of all-pervading, non-entity influence thingy. The outcome of that teaching is that all men, saints and sinners alike, become at least partially divine. Hey, God's everywhere, right? And the heavenly sanctuary became wherever God is. Hence the name of the book, Living Temple, right? Beyond the philosophical elements, there were also clear indications of direct supernatural involvement. Demonic supernatural involvement, in this case, we're talking about the apostasy side of things. 
I think we looked at this one already. When you, Dr. Kellogg, wrote that book, you were not under the inspiration of God. There was by your side the one who inspired Adam to look at God in a false light. Warning to the General Conference, it is not John Kellogg that you are dealing with. It is a being who once figured in the courts of heaven as an exalted angel. The poor doctor is not in his right mind. It is Satan's theories that are now coming to the front from the lips of Dr. Kellogg. Yeah, okay, so there was, this, was a, this was a big issue. Let's put it that way, okay? <clears throat> um, I would say, this is my opinion, that in our past treatment of the alpha of apostasy in that time period, we've had a bit of a blind spot in understanding how that applies to the end of time. We have tended, I would say, to focus somewhat too exclusively on only one element of one big issue, and that's spiritualism. We tend to think of spiritualism only in terms of you know, seances and the spirits of the dead and you know, that sort of thing. That's part of it. But there's a lot more. When, when Ellen writes about the, you know, spirits of the dead coming back type of a thing, you know, she had a lot to say on that, okay? But there are times when she turns her attention to what I might call the more philosophical underpinnings of that whole thing. And when she writes that stuff, the no-death issue, it's important, it's foundational, but the development coming out of it is so all-reaching that it, it, you almost lose sight of the whole you shall not surely die thing, okay? I'll show you. Spiritualism declares that there is no death. There you go. That's the thou shall not surely die. You shall not surely die. But directly coming out of that are all these other conclusions. No sin, no judgment, no retribution, that men are unfallen demigods, that desire is the highest law, that man is accountable only to himself. The barriers that God has erected to guard truth, purity, and reverence are broken down, and many are thus emboldened in sin. That's spiritualism. And we tend to think that, you know, if you don't have a ghost floating in your background of your picture or something, that it doesn't really qualify. Uh, no. Okay. All this other stuff is spiritualism. That's where it comes from, right? This is the spiritualism Dr. Kellogg was involved with. I don't have any indications that he was talking to his dear departed aunt. Right? I just don't, you know, never seen that. He was head over heels into some of this other stuff, though. This is a part of the Omega. It's obviously plenty popular in our day. You would have to have been living under a rock for the last 50 years to not know that all this stuff is, is pretty commonly circulating now. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe one of the most basic things to remember about Satan's attack at the end of time is that it is, in its very nature, counterfeit. Well, when I say that, the first thing that probably pops into most Adventist minds would be this statement. As the crowning act in the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ. In different parts of the earth, Satan will manifest himself among men as a majestic being of dazzling brightness resembling the description of the Son of God given by John in the Revelation. 
The glory that surrounds him is unsurpassed by anything that mortal eyes have yet beheld. The shout of triumph rings out upon the air. Christ has come. Christ has come. Satan will impersonate Christ himself, personally, physically, bodily, whatever. But that's not all. <laughs> come on. We, we, get so, we get so focused on one thing, we just miss the whole, the whole landscape that the, the thing is, is sitting in, right? It's important. But counterfeiting started long before that game. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The enemy of souls desires to hinder this work, and before the time for such a movement shall come, he will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. Under a religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. Okay, so this is not a brand new thought. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great controversy. Come on, you've read that, right? So I'm not telling you something you haven't seen before. But just think about it for a minute. What do you suppose primitive godliness looks like? That's kind of a not, not a real hearty response. Let me try that one more time. <laughs> the Book of Acts. The Book of Acts. Okay, um, give you a hot tip. How about picking up a, a, a term that we've been bantying about uh, quite a bit here in the last week? Uh, primitive godliness is, is exemplified in Christ-like good works. Primitive godliness is medical missionary work. Self-sacrificing, self-denying, compassion, love, sweetness, and goodness, and good works. That's primitive godliness. So, what would a counterfeit of that look like? Medical missionary work. Medical missionary work. The devil's going to have his own brand of medical missionary work. He would be a fool not to. Let's keep reading a little bit more. Same book. Not showing up yet. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Let's go on. The last great delusion is soon to open before us. Antichrist is to perform his marvelous works in our sight. So closely will the counterfeit resemble the true that it will be impossible to distinguish between them except by the Holy Scriptures. By their testimony, every statement and every miracle must be tested. Now, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one, but... I tended to read that, and I said, well, if we're going to test it by the Holy Scriptures, they must be talking about theology. Now, <laughs> miracles. <laughs> every statement, every miracle is to be tested by the Scriptures. Medical missionary work is to be tested by the Scriptures. The devil is going to counterfeit medical missionary work, and it can be tested by the Scriptures. Okay? Everybody good with that? <laughs> no? Satan can present a counterfeit so closely resembling the truth that it deceives those who are willing to be deceived. Now, what do you think it takes to qualify as being willing to be deceived? What characteristic of a person's mind, heart, life, something, would it take to be willing to be deceived? That's all good. 
a little too heavily intellectual. <laughs> I heard study, lack of discernment, something else. That's, that's, that's a little intellectual. Let's get it down. What does it take to be willing to be deceived? Pride, don't want the truth. That's a, still a little, little theoretical, brother. Let's get this down. I heard give up self. I heard surrender. We're getting close. See the dots? Boom. <clears throat> Who desire to shun self-denial and sacrifice, demanded by the truth. You want to be willing to be deceived? There you go. You want to do medical missionary work without self-denial and self-sacrifice? Bad choice, brother. <laughs> that ain't going to work. You're going to be deceived. You are willing to be deceived. <sighs> yeah, where do self-sacrifice, self-denial show up the most? Medical missionary work. And that's exactly what makes miracles so, so totally cool, man. You know, Not only do they show supernatural power, but they take away all the hard work. <laughs> it's like so cool. Here's this guy that you know, we've been doing fomentations on him you know, three times a day for the last four months, but let's just, let's just heal him, get it over with. <laughs> you know, in Jesus' day, the prevailing theology was Phariseeism, okay? I'm going to be such a good boy that Jesus has to take me to heaven. And Jesus came along, and he used healing to represent a truth, which we must never, ever forget. And that is, no, you can't do that by yourself. You cannot do what you need by yourself. You absolutely have to have the touch of the divine to accomplish what needs to be accomplished in your life. You cannot heal yourself. You know what? Except for some creatively constructed examples, I haven't run into a lot of classic Phariseeism in my experience in, 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 in other people's lives. I don't find people saying, I'm going to be so good that God has to take me to heaven. Now, you know, we can, you know, you can, you know, oh, this is Phariseeism and that's Phariseeism, and, and, and we can come up with the creatively constructed examples, and there's probably, a, you know, a certain amount of truth in some of that, although I think a lot of people will go to a lot of trouble to try and make good works and Christian standards look like Phariseeism in the process, but, you know, I don't see a lot of people running around saying, I'm going to be so holy that God has to take me to heaven. I, I see it kind of shifted to the other end of the spectrum right now. A little more towards the cheap grace thing. And in our day, God has used healing to present the balancing truth. There is natural law. And healing comes through obedience to natural law. And Ellen White says something like 300 sometimes. As in the natural, so in the spiritual. You're not going to have your, your spiritual healing in violation of spiritual law. Anyhow, <clears throat> and the spiritual law requires self-denial and self-sacrifice, by the way. That's, that's the law of heaven, right? Remember? Take to give, the, the, the circle of beneficence. Okay, That's the law of heaven. Okay, going on. The light is given me in regard to the poor understanding of those that have been in the truth. 
that these sophistries and this mysticism and doing away with the personality of God and with the personality of Christ will get the whole room of the heart all ready for these miracles that Satan will come to work right in our midst. Some shall depart from the, from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. It all works together. The devil's package is, is really synergistic. You know, if you get sucked in on this side, it'll, it'll pull you to the other side, too. You know, you know, bring it all together. If you get caught on this side, it'll pull you into the other side. You know, he's he's going to get you any way he possibly can. And so these, the mysticism, the sophistries, prepare the way for being completely swept off your feet with, with miracles coming along. Wonderful scenes with which Satan will be closely connected will soon take place. God's word declares that Satan will work miracles. He will make people sick, and then will suddenly remove from them his satanic power. They will then be regarded as healed. These works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. Many who have had great light will fail to walk in the light because they have not become one with Christ. His instruction is not palatable to them. Notice those last two sentences. Yeah, I know, the, the, the bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test is the, is the hot-button statement there. But... Process that, and let's move on. But look at the last two sentences, right? They have not become one with Christ. What are they lacking? Self-denial and self-sacrifice. His instruction is not palatable to them. Which particular instruction would that be? Love your neighbor. <laughs> you know? It's pretty simple, actually. It's dirt simple. Really. So why am I so confused half the time? You know, really, I, I, I find myself vacillating back and forth between, this is so simple, you'd have to be three days dead not to figure this out, to, I don't have a clue. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a weird experience in my brain sometimes. Maybe yours is better. I hope it is. Let's go back to Satan impersonating Jesus. The shout of triumph rings out upon the air. Christ has come, Christ has come. The people prostrate themselves in adoration before him while he lifts up his hands and pronounces a blessing upon them as Christ blessed his disciples when he was upon the earth. His voice is soft and subdued, yet full of melody. In gentle, compassionate tones, he presents some of the same gracious heavenly truths which the Savior uttered. He heals the diseases of the people. And then in his assumed character, Christ, he claims to have changed the Sabbath to Sunday. What is he doing? He's doing exactly what he has to do in order to look like Jesus. And Jesus was the great medical missionary. Satan will come in to deceive, if possible, the very elect. He claims to be Christ, and he is coming in pretending to be the great medical missionary. The Omega apostasy is superficially going to look like the loud cry. Why would he not? <laughs> Why would he do anything else? <clears throat> Incidentally, after the book Great Controversy is written, why won't Satan change his plan? <laughs> well, you know, no, no, just but, but think about this for a second. You know, suppose you've got, uh, you know, I don't care, World War II, something like that. So Hitler finds out that the Allies want to invade through Normandy. And then the Allies find out that Hitler found out that they're going to invade through Normandy. You don't think that the Allies would change their plan? 
when God outlines Satan's plans, he gives Satan the best possible alternative and for him to deviate from what God has outlined is going to make it less effective. He's stuck. He's absolutely stuck. <laughs> I think that's funny. I just like that. I just, I just really like that. You know, Satan can't because well, let's try this. Oh no, that won't work so well. Let's try this. No, that won't work so well. Even with the 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 uh, what's what's the term we use all the time? The the element of surprise. You know, if I if if I'm Satan and I can switch, I don't want to do that great controversy thing, man. You know, some of them at least are expecting that. Let's do something else. Even with the element of surprise, it won't be as effective. You know, Ellen White said as much on several occasions. A.T. Jones once wrote to her. A.T. Jones uh, got caught up in the Anna Rice Phillips false prophesying thing back in the 1890s, right? It was, it was a, a, a humiliating and embarrassing uh, failure on his part. When he was corrected and reproved, he manfully confessed and repented, and he wrote Ellen White a letter. He said, I don't ever want to do something stupid like that again. How can I prevent that? How is the devil going to tempt me? And she wrote back and she said, if I were to tell you, the devil would change his plans and attack you in a different way. So there's no value in me telling you. On a personal level, that appears to be true. In several cases, she said, I cannot write all that I know because the warning would be um, inaccurate the moment the warning was uttered. Right? Does that make sense? <clears throat> so I cannot write all that I know. But on the big picture, the great controversy, I think he's stuck. I think it's funny. I like that. Anyhow, let's go on. Um, <clears throat> Let's look at a list of the techniques that Lucifer used in heaven. This is the same sort of thing that Kellogg used. Um, exploit position and trust as long as possible. Whoever, wherever you are, if you're going into apostasy, your natural tendency will be to try to hang on to your power and influence as long as you possibly can. Hide your intentions from others. Imply or insinuate without clear assertions. Distort others' perceptions, maintain plausible deniety, shift responsibility to others, lie. Abandon discredited positions without accepting responsibility for having advocated them, cite evidence, uh, cite supporters as evidence of correctness, and appeal to sympathy. <clears throat> That's what the devil's going to use. We're going to have another list uh, a little bit later on in, this, in the slides here as well with some of the more specific things that were done in Kellogg's day. But these are the general principles that Satan used in heaven, the general principles that were all employed in Kellogg's day. They will be used again. You are to be forewarned. Number one, first item. CC for man. CC for man whose breath is in his nostrils, okay? Cursed is the man who trusteth the man and maketh flesh his arm. <clears throat> now, there is a balance to that. That's, that's uh, what is that, Jeremiah 17? 
I think that's verses 5 and 7, cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, and I don't remember what 6 says, and then 7 says, cursed is the man who trusts in man and maketh flesh his arm. Verse 9 is a bit of a balance. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, and who can know it? That's why there is still a place for counsel. You're going to have to figure out the difference between depending on men and counseling with men. It's a bit of a fine line. You're going to have to figure that out. Because you're going to need the counsel. But if you depend on them, you will die. <laughs> Just a simple reality. You're going to have people that are going to be lying to you, hiding their intentions. You're, you're going to have to cultivate a sanctified non-gullibility without crossing over into being unduly suspicious. Discernment. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's a more dignified term. I like that one. It's a tough thing, though. Trust me. There are, I don't think it's so big in Adventism that I you know, but in the non-Adventist world, there's a whole category known as discernment ministries. Yeah, whatever. Um, A.K.A. Mudslinging Incorporated. Okay, um, there's, a, there's a line. Every single thing that God asks us to do, there's a balance. And human beings hate balance. We are obnoxious, miserable, rotten, no-goods, and we love to take one side of any issue and run with it for all it's worth. Well, okay, other things there are, um, well, the distort others' perceptions, that's, that's really along the line of I mean, I'm going to talk about this later on, so let me just... Okay, just, let's just go on. Let's look closely at Ellen White's statement about the Reformation that Kellogg wanted to bring about. Talking about the Alpha of Apostasy. The reason this is important is because what the Alpha would have developed into, I will argue, is our best picture of what the Omega will be. Okay? So here's what she said. The enemy of souls has, brought, has sought to bring in the supposition that a great reformation will take place among Seventh-day Adventists, and that this reformation would consist in giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith and engaging in a process of reorganization. Were this reformation to take place, what would result? Number one, notice, we're giving up our doctrines. Well, that's not a good idea. You find people mocking Adventist doctrine, don't read their book. That's actually a, a form of spiritualism. <laughs> okay? It goes right back to the same thing. Man is his own law. Stay away from that garbage. The, the thought there, the, the comment there about the process of reorganization, that's one that I'm, I, I can't say I think I fully understand. I don't know exactly what all that would have entailed. It's kind of an interesting idea. Just hang on to it. You know, sometimes God tells us stuff really clearly, and sometimes he tells us stuff so that when it comes to pass, you will know that I am he. <laughs> okay? I, I, don't, I don't know that I could predict that one much. Okay? But let's go on. The principles of truth that God in his wisdom has given to the remnant church would be discarded. There's your doctrine again going throughout the window. Our religion would be changed. I think similar thought there. 
the fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be accounted as errors. Still sort of a similar idea. You know, she's repeating this. I think she's emphasizing this. Let us not ignore the value and the significance of, of doctrinal truth. Okay? A new organization would be established. Well, that's an interesting one to speculate on. How would that, how would that look if that were to happen today? And I, I don't know. So just, you know, think about that one. Books of a new order would be written. Oh, man, this has been everybody's favorite for about the last 50 years, right? You know, every time something comes off the press that people don't agree with, that's a book of a new order. <laughs> that's been used on both sides back. That one's, it's perfectly true. I think it's just been overused, perhaps, or wrongly applied at times. A system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced. Keep it simple, brothers. The founders of the system would go into the cities and do a wonderful work. Now, this is Kellogg. This is the Chicago City Mission. Probably that's the easiest example or easiest illustration or application of that right there. The Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded. How, how, how do those two things go together? Okay. So I will caution you on a balance. There's a balance on medical missionary work on the Sabbath day. Is it, good to, is it, is it lawful to do good or to evil, do evil on the Sabbath day? You know, stretch out your hand and it was made whole on the Sabbath, and so they said, let's, let's kill him. Let's kill him. He, he just broke the Sabbath. Let's kill him. Obviously, there's a place for doing good on the Sabbath. There's also a place for respecting the Sabbath. Holding off till Sunday, what doesn't have to be done on Sabbath. So there's a balance there. I can't define it precisely, but I can tell you that there's two ditches. Let's go on. Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded as also the God who created it. Nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of the new movement. What does that speak to? Force. Strong-arm tactics. You might see some of that. The leaders would teach that virtue is better than vice. Well, that's good. But God being removed, they would place their dependence on human power, which without God is worthless. Their foundation would be built on the sand and storm, sand, comma, and storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. Okay. Well, there are some, uh, some aspects of this that are already in play within Adventism. I'll give you one brief example. There are many others that could come along. This is an interesting website. I don't know if you can read the white print on the red text up in the middle there. This is the website of the Adventist Peace Fellowship. You probably haven't heard of it. It hasn't become a huge thing. The Adventist Peace Fellowship is one of a sisterhood of peace fellowships. There's a Baptist Peace Fellowship and a Pentecostal Peace Fellowship and a Catholic Peace Fellowship and a Buddhist Peace Fellowship, a Jewish and Hindu. and So it tends to be a little ecumenical, shall we say. <clears throat> now, the picture there, I believe, is, is of... Uh, a South African diamond field. And what we have there is a bunch of people who are, I'm not arguing with this at all, they are seriously over-exploited by 
you know, the, the big corporations that, that control the diamond mines, okay? But notice, I mean, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a situation which would arouse concern in a Christian heart. I, I, I'm good with that, okay? Notice how this is described. You, the, the little text down the bottom left, you can't read it probably, so I'll blow it up there. It says, the Adventist Peace Fellowship holds to a position on Sabbath economics. We support debt relief for developing nations and a preferential option for the poor. Yeah? Sabbath? <laughs> What's that got to do with the Sabbath? <laughs> it's a little weird. The Adventist Peace Fellowship is, you know, just broadly speaking, it's, uh, it's very ecumenical in its nature, um, very humanitarian in its nature. It's got the medical missionary kind of a concept thing going, um, but it has not a high regard, I would say, for Adventist doctrine. Let's go on. <clears throat> Notice this. We, this is a slide we looked at a moment ago, but um, it says they, God is removed. They place their dependence on human power, which God is worthless. Their foundation would be built on the sand, and storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. What's the imagery? Where's she, where's she drawing the imagery from here? What foundation, sand, whatever? What's that? Okay. The wise man built his house upon a rock. Anybody recognize that song? Some of our younger... There you go. Good job. That's, a, that's, that's always an accomplishment when I can sing something and they recognize the tune. Um, it comes from the parable of the two houses. The wise man, the foolish man, and the storm. There are two houses, but there's only one storm. That's important to understand. God does not say, why look, there is a holy and righteous individual. I will send him April showers so that he has May flowers. And then he turns and he looks and says, oh dear, there is a terrible sinner. I will send Irma. <laughs> for him. <laughs> okay? It's the same storm. There is no favoritism involved here. The houses, for all I know, they look like cookie-cutter suburbia houses. Maybe they were identical on the outside. They look the same. The only difference that Jesus specifies is the foundation. <clears throat> the wise man's house was not shielded from the storm. It endured the storm because of its foundation. Well, what's the storm and tempest? What is this talking about? When's this all happen? I'm pretty sure on this one, so I'm just going to assert this. We call it the little time of trouble. I'm not a prophet. That's significantly above my pay scale. But it's pretty easy to believe it could come soon. It came two days ago from Puerto Rico, from what I understand. The financial, political, medical, social systems of our world are all very close to failing. The wrong set of circumstances could easily push any one of those over an unfortunate cliff. What happens if they all kind of start to fall apart at once? I don't think they're just like fold over dead in a single day. But, you know, you can start to stress these systems. 
What happens when law and order starts to break down? It has in some parts of the country, by the way. What happens when the medical system faces a H1N1 flu? You would have about a week and a half to two weeks before your hospital system would be shut down is the, the best estimations. Because your healthcare providers are the first ones who are going to be exposed to the flu. Okay, anyhow, this is the point. When that sort of a collapse comes, and I believe it will, there will be two teams of medical missionaries. One team will be doing work identical to the work of Christ, and the other team will be doing work that looks identical to the work of Christ. Both groups will be helping people. Why are they helping people? Because when the, the world starts to crumble, no philosophical system of any sort is going to gain any traction if it's not addressing the, the real needs of the people. You know? If you want to sit in your well, Sunday-keeping church and just preach on Sunday morning when people are starving to death around you, they're not going to pay a lot of attention. So the devil's work is going to find the value of medical mission work all of a sudden. Both groups will be helping people. Okay, I already covered that. Let's go on. In the last scenes of this earth's history, war will rage. There will be pestilence, plague, and famine. The waters of the deep will overflow their boundaries. Property and life will be destroyed by fire and flood. Well, obviously, we've seen some examples of that. God has warned us of this time of trouble and told us what to do to get ready for it. And since Satan's work is a counterfeit, you can be sure his people will be doing something that looks the same. What did God tell us to do to get ready for this set of circumstances? Somebody used the statement yesterday, but I'll put it on the screen so you can read it. That's not what I was expecting. Next slide. I got them out of order, something like that. Okay. It's a great slide. Let's just read it. If you are a competent physician, you are qualified to do tenfold more good as a missionary for God than if you were to go forth merely as a preacher of the word. I would advise young men and women to give heed to this matter. Perilous times are before us. The whole, whole, whole world will be involved in perplexity and distress. Disease of every kind will be upon the human family, and such ignorance as now prevails concerning the laws of health would result in great suffering and the loss of many lives that might be saved. That's, again, just kind of telling us what's coming. It implies what to do about it, but here's a statement I was expecting. As religious aggression subverts the liberties of our nation, those who would stand for freedom of conscience will be placed in unfavorable positions for their own sake. Stop right there. What does it mean when somebody says, for your own sake, man? It means heads up. If you want to do something smart for yourself, listen. For their own sake, they should, while they have opportunity, become intelligent in regard to disease, its causes, prevention, and cure. And those who do this will find a field of labor anywhere. There will be suffering ones, plenty of them, who will need help, not only among those of our own faith, but largely among those who know not the truth. And this is not hard to imagine. Take Puerto Rico. Hopefully it's a smaller percentage of the population. What about all the people right now who are on prescription medications that have a deleterious effect when they run out of their supply? You think they're going to be able to get their meds next week? Not in Puerto Rico. I don't know what it was. It was something like 
65% of the population over 60 years of age is, is on medications that will have bad events if they just stop them? Does that sound reasonable? Something in that neighborhood, maybe? Doctor, any guesses? I saw that figure a while back, and I, just, I don't remember it exactly, but yeah, yeah, there's some drugs, you know, they may be doing you some good, but you don't just stop them. There will be suffering ones, plenty of them. God's people will be ministering to the people, both for their physical health and their spiritual health, so they'll be doing the same thing Jesus did when he was here, and Satan's followers, much the same, in appearance anyway, until the storm and tempest sweeps away the structure. Now, sweeping away the structure of the devil's counterfeit is not the same as sweeping away the buildings in Puerto Rico. How does the storm sweep away the devil's house, but not the Lord's house? Is the Lord working a miracle to protect his people? No. Both houses face the same storm. So what's the difference? The foundation. Christ, our righteousness. Which is what? What have we just covered all week long? It's set forth in Isaiah 58. <laughs> it's set forth in the principles of self-sacrifice and self-denial. It's set forth in the principles of the revelation of the character of God. That's righteousness by faith. That's Christ, our righteousness. That's the hope of glory, Christ within. That's the foundation that can survive the little time of trouble. And I'm not talking... I think I've avoided using this term so far, but I always end up using it anyhow. I'm not talking spiritual fairy dust. I'm talking real, re, I'm talking reality. Okay? That can survive. The devils cannot because the devil's foundation is selfishness. And it's going to come to the point where the resources are limited. Remember, back on Monday, I said it always comes back to resources. The resources are going to be limited. We've got 100 people on this island. We've only got enough food for 20, and I'm jolly well going to be one of them. That's the devil's attitude. It's going to come to the point where the devil's whole counterfeit structure is swept away because selfish hearts will not give when they cannot guarantee their own supply. Christians, they run out of supplies too. What do they do? They keep on giving. But that seems a little weird somehow. You know, we've got a good example of that, though. One day, Jesus turned around to Philip and he said, why don't you feed him? And Philip, being an accountant, did the sort of thing that I'd do. I'd say, Jesus, that's going to cost a lot of money. It didn't seem to bother Jesus. He said, have him sit down. We'll take care of this. The Lord guarantees to provide for us as long as we're working for others. <clears throat> Christians are in the middle of the same storm, but it's different because Christ our righteousness is the experience of faith, and they've learned the lesson from the feeding the 5,000. When Jesus asks you to bless people, he'll supply what's needed. 
by faith, God's people to continue to serve as their master did before them, having nothing of his own. Bear in mind, the foxes and the birds were better off financially than Jesus was. He had nothing. And he constantly was giving away. Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's the difference between those who have faith and those who do not, which, of course, takes us right back to the issue that started the whole controversy when Lucifer decided he couldn't trust God to take care of him. I like this. To me, this is very philosophically, intellectually satisfying that the, the end of the great controversy is exactly the issue that started it. It's wrapped up. Put a, put a bow on it. We're done. <laughs> what Lucifer decided not to do, God's people have finally learned how to do. It'll be a happy day in heaven when they see some progress on the every earthly support issue. Remember these? In the last great conflict, this controversy with Satan, those who are loyal to God will see every earthly support cut off. Oh, no! Drop down to the bottom. Oh, cool. That's what we were supposed to do. <laughs> That's where we're going. We're going where Jesus went. Some prophet or martyr has trod it before. Well, the storm and tempest helps make the final demonstration of the character of both those who have chosen to serve Satan and those who have chosen to serve Christ. But here's a, here's a question for you. you know, if, it's, if all it takes is a sufficiently messed up world to bring on the end of the great controversy, why is it taking so long? Well, as it turns out, a messed up world is not what's holding things up. It's the least of the delays. The problem with letting go of the four winds too soon, remember the... Hold, 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 hold thing, okay? The problem with letting go of the four winds too soon is that if God's people aren't ready, God's going to end up with only one demonstration being made. Oh, that ain't good. <laughs> we don't need a single-sided demonstration of Lucifer's principles. That's exactly what he's hoping for. And so God is Waiting. Waiting waiting. So what's the, now that's, that's, we've kind of overlapped a few things here, but, you know, just closing up. There is the, the, the great end of, the, the great final test, one statement said, you know, there's the, there's the end of time, there's all that sort of thing, and there's, there's fascinating things going on. But, you know, when you talk about the omega of apostasy, my impression of it is that, is that, is that she's really using that terminology to focus on what is internal within the Adventist church. That, I don't know, if you differ with that, you're, feel free, that's fine. But that's, that's kind of my thought. You know, there's, there's the worldwide issues, but the, the apostasy has to come from where truth was held, right? I mean, you can't apostatize when you're already an apostate. <coughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but I went through Dr. Kellogg's experience. I just want to list some things on, on here of what was used by the devil and Dr. Kellogg against the members of God's church. So, you'll see some overlap with what we looked at before, but there's several new items on here. <clears throat> there's the appeal to reputation. Right? I already talked about that. You're going to find that. Apostates 
within the Adventist church are still going to have their resumes. The resume doesn't disappear just because they left the truth. There's going to be a shifting of strategies. You argue this way and they change somehow. They flit over here and they come at it from this side and back and forth. You'll see that. There will be a demeriting of the ministry, the doctrines and standards of the church. You can see that unless you're three days dead or blind. Inappropriate spending. Vast sums of money have, were in Kellogg's day spent on things that the money was not, it was not wise spending. Well, why do that? Well, two things. It fosters a wrong vision and it starves to death the right vision. You'll probably see some of that. Misdirection of workers. Workers being told, you need to go here and do this. And Ellen White was quite adamant on that. She said, let God have control of his workers. And every, I'm not speaking to you guys. I mean, there were a couple of amens here, and that's good. But again, back to the balance, because I'll guarantee that every renegade in the, in the, in the crowd is going to love that statement. <laughs> you know, These guys should not be telling me what to do. The Lord tells me what to do. Which is why the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, and you probably ought to have some counsel, brother. Okay? There's a difference between counsel and direction. Right? It's a balance. It's a balance. Contracts and control. Kellogg was big on contracts. This was one of the bigger battles between him and Ellen White. Sign on the line here. We got a wonderful deal for you. This was, I'm talking about church employment, actually. Uh, the relationship of one sanitarium to another. Tying things together in bundles to be burned, Ellen White said. Centralization. Law and lawyers. Oh, man. Illinois did not have a really positive impression of Kellogg's dependence on the legal system. Science. Science is good, except when science is bad. When science is bad, it can be very bad. Hypnosis. Hypnosis is always bad. It comes under different names now. Um, Dr. Erickson. Uh, probably is the guy who pushed it to its more uh, current heights. Uh, consequently, advanced levels of hypnosis are now sometimes referred to as Ericksonian hypnosis. You'll also find it referred to as neurolinguistic programming and a variety of suggestive techniques and different things like that. Disloyal and dishonest church officials. Not all of them, but there will be some. There were some, right to the general conference level in Kellogg's day. Clueless lay members. There were some of them. There will be some of those today. Attacks on the spirit of prophecy. Plots, schemes, and conspiracies. What I'm saying, uh, the reason I put this up here is because Ellen White uses all those terms. And what I'm saying is, you are not going to be, in the final analysis of this, you are not working against well-intentioned individuals. There will be some who want to harm you. And they are not being honest about it. And by definition, that is a plot, a scheme, or a conspiracy. Always, always, always separate the medical from the, the ministerial. The mystical aspect, the concept of I can, at my own leisure and control, establish contact with deity. Uh, 
And of course, the appeal to sympathy. I'm just trying to do the best, and you guys are picking on me. And here's the troubling one I spoke of yesterday. I cannot yet explain this well. I talked about it yesterday. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm see the clock. I got it right. I cannot explain this well, but I can tell you from the examples of the past, Lucifer, Judas, Kellogg, God does not warn the rank and file until the leaders of the apostasy have reached a deadly, dangerous level already. I don't know why. I'll just be honest. In my human assessment, I say, that's malpractice, God. I'll just be honest. That's my reaction to it. But you know what? I have found that I quite commonly make mistakes, and God is smarter than I am. I have found that. I assume that to be the case here. I, I, I don't have an explanation for that one. I'm just here to tell you that's the way he's done it the last three times. You might want to get to the point in your faith in God that you can say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Okay, so what do we do now? <clears throat> that's where we're coming up to. Not all those things are at full level by any means. Don't underestimate the devil's ability to make life worse. Uh, we are not up to speed on the most basic of issues, and that's what is most concerning to me. Things like self-denial, self-sacrifice, they have not been developed fully because we haven't had enough faith to let go of every earthly support and trust God's love and wisdom to take care of us. That being the case, we've got some double-time work to do. Have you ever heard of remedial English class? People go to college and they just really don't have a, a grasp of the language yet, you know? So there's a remedial English class. Sometimes it's referred to as bonehead English. You know what we need? We need a bonehead Christianity class. We need a bonehead Christianity class. Fortunately, God is big on remedial education. I suggest we all rush down and sign up for the class. God desires everyone to understand the hateful character of selfishness and to cooperate with him in guarding his human family against its terrible deceptive power. The first result of the entrance of sin in the world was the birth of principles of selfishness. The design of the gospel is by means of remedial missionary work to confront this evil of selfishness and destroy its destructive power by establishing enterprises of benevolence. Remedial missionary work. Who is being remedied? The missionaries. Us. Remedial missionary work. That's what we need is a bonehead Christianity class. We may or may not be really close to the time the storm breaks in full tempest. Parts of it, I think, are here. It's not fully here. That means we can still work for God before all perdition breaks loose. So what to do now? Here's a great idea. Because so little effort has been made to engage young men and women in the missionary work which must be done to bring the gospel invitation to all, there is but one worker where there should be a hundred. 
The indifference which is manifested for suffering humanity is charged against churches and families and individuals. Why? Because so little effort has been made to bring the young men and young women into this kind of work. Unless there are those who will devise means of turning to account the time, strength, and brains of the church members, there will be a great work left undone that ought to be done. Haphazard work will not answer. We want men in the church, and women too, who have ability to develop in the line of organizing and giving practical work to young men and women in the line of relieving the wants of humanity and working for the salvation of the souls of men, women, youth, and children. No, you, know, you don't have to be a young man or a young woman to work for the Lord. But never fool yourself. Sorry for all the rest of you who share my hair color. There is a power in those single 20-somethings that we, we do not have any longer. I think I figured out what it is. When somebody you know, is 23 years old or something like that is actually doing something that's intelligent and commendable, people look at them and say, that's incredible. Why are they doing that? Why didn't I do that when I was 23? And they stop and oh yeah, it's because I was in college. I was drunk the whole year. <laughs> there is something incredible about the influence of that late teen through the, the single 20-somethings. God says, Get these kids trained. <laughs> Help them. Organize them. Show them how to roll out there and relieve the needs of suffering humanity. Anybody doing that? You know, if you see anyone or even an institution that's trying to do that, I'm going to suggest that you support them. Amen. And maybe, maybe, for some of us with the gray hairs all die and pass from the scene, which you know, could well happen. Maybe we can finish this mess by doing what Jesus did. Let's kneel for prayer. Father, we, um, we hardly know what to do and say as a general rule. When we look at the magnitude of what needs to be done, it would be easy to be discouraged. But when we look at the power, the influence of the character of Christ, the character of God, and our privilege of manifesting that character, Lord, there's no reason we can't do this. By your grace, convince us that we can do this. Inspire us with faith and courage Guide us each, Lord, we, uh, we all walk different paths. We all have different needs and responsibilities and all that other stuff. Lord, just take us. Take us and use us. Make us your workers, we pray. May the glory be seen in the character of God, reflected through erring humanity, but let it be reflected, we pray, in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.